Father, we come before you and we rejoice. We come with thankfulness, Lord. We come before the God who is perfect in all you do and all you say. There is no flaw in you, no imperfection, no error. You are true in every way. And you are good in every way. So we pray that as we come this morning, we would be ever mindful of these things. As those who are not really any of those things. We thank you that in your mercy upon mercies, you came and you sent your son to die for us, to take the place of sinners on our behalf, that through him we have life and we may have life forevermore. We thank you that you have given us your word, which is true. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is sure. And so we come recognizing this and believing this with all we are, knowing it's true, knowing you're true, knowing you're perfect, and you never lie. And so we thank you, Father, and we pray that you would give us grace this morning as we turn to a challenging passage. May you help us, Father, as we seek to honor you and seek your face in all we do. May you conform us to Christ. And if there's anyone here who does not know Christ this morning, may you help them to see their depth of need for Christ this morning. So be with us and bless this time, we ask, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, if you would go ahead and turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. Well, this morning we'll be looking at John chapter 7, verse 53, through to John chapter 8, verse 11. And so here we find a passage that is very often told very fondly as well. And, you know, many telling it with a a good deal of wonder as well. And so, you know, it's pretty much in, in most of the movies you might see that have something uh, that depict the life of Christ. And, you know, a number of years ago, the movie The Passion of the Christ, it depicted this story really for kind of a, a brief moment within the movie. You kind of see a woman, she reaches for Jesus' feet. And in the background, what's happening with the scribes and the Pharisees, one by one, stone by stone, they are dropping their, their stones, and you can't help but watch and wonder at Jesus and his great mercy towards sinners. Well, this then, that story, is the story we'll be coming to this morning here at the end of John 7. So I'll read from this passage this morning, beginning with verse 53 there. And so may God give us grace as we seek his face this morning. 
They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him. They might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. From now on, sin no more. Now as we come to our passage this morning, as I said in my prayer, we're coming to kind of a difficult passage this morning as well. As we examine it here and look at it, if your Bible is like mine, before we actually read the words of these verses, you may have noticed these other words that were there in brackets. So it says there, in my Bible, or perhaps in your footnote, earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verses 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. So your translation, it may have those words, or it may simply you know, have a letter beside them, kind of footnoting it, like I said just a moment ago. And so this provides us to this morning uh, with something of a challenge, doesn't it? Trying to think through how we're to think through these verses. And so this, this means that this morning will be a, a different sort of sermon. And I say that because it's, it's going to be a different sort of sermon because it's a very hard and odd sermon to preach. But it's important that I preach it. And so, and as I say that, I say also honestly... You know, I have wrestled with this passage in those brackets for quite a long time. And not just this past week, you know, even though I spent a good many hours thinking through this passage. But I've wrestled with how to preach this passage for the last six to seven years. <laughs> this is my first time preaching it. So there are a number of ways that, you know, pastors kind of approach this passage and, and walk through it, you know, as I've heard it preached over the years. And I remember hearing a pastor once preach. He's preaching through the Gospel of John, you know, and when he got to this text, well, he, he didn't say anything. He just, he just skipped right on entirely. No word, no comment, nothing. And so he just went on from, you know, uh, 752, chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12. Now, I knew about the brackets, 
But I thought then, you know, it would have been more helpful if he had at least told us why he skipped it. But he didn't, he didn't say anything. <laughs> and so I don't think that's helpful. We could have done that this morning, which may be a surprise to saying that to you. And I'll tell you why we could have done that this morning as well. Now, still, as I'm thinking through this, so six to seven years of thinking through this, now skip forward a number of years, and I heard another pastor preach on this passage, and this time, he didn't skip it, which I was very thankful, and he dealt with it, and he showed how we are to understand these verses and this, these brackets as well. And so that is the approach that I'm going to take this morning as well. So not skipping it, are those who have done that as well, but I'm not going to skip it this morning. I think it's important that you know how we as believers need to approach this passage. So in light of that, that means that this really is going to be a different type of sermon. Um, And you'll see that more as we continue. So there's going to be kind of a part one to this sermon, and there's going to be kind of a part two to this sermon. In the first part, I'll try to provide something of an answer as to what we are to do with these brackets. And I hope at the same time, even as we have structured this whole service, you know, uh, uh, how firm a foundation and with 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, hopefully already you're hearing where that's going with this and bolstering our confidence in the Bible. So that's kind of be the first part of the sermon. And the second part of the sermon, I'll focus on the passage itself. So in light of a very different sermon, let's, let's turn then to see this first part of the sermon and see here the sure attributes of the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. Let's say it again. I don't know if you have the points there, but Sure, see here the sure attributes of the inerrancy and inspiration of Scripture. And here I want to emphasize to you the word sure. <laughs> These attributes are sure because God's Word is sure. And because Scripture itself bears witness to these attributes. And so, hear me loud and clear. I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the inspiration of Scripture fully, completely, wholeheartedly. Now, I say that because there may be some painful things to say ahead as well. It may be hard, perhaps. So I'm not going to dive too deep into these attributes this morning, which we could do. But if we did that, it would be more than one sermon. And so we're not going to do that. We're gonna, what I'm going to do and try to do is to give you a, a rock-solid kind of confidence in God's Word this morning. So I want to say it clearly that we can, should, and without uh, reserve, trust our errant, infallible, and inspired Bibles. Make that totally clear. And so this attribute, inerrancy, what, it, what does it mean? Well, it means that Scripture is without error in the original manuscripts, in all its parts. So, it's without error in the original manuscripts, in all its parts. 
Now that may be a bit surprising, that kind of definition there. But we believe it because it's the original manuscripts themselves that were inspired. The autographs, they were the ones pinned by the various you know, people and men of Scripture. And those are inspired by God. And so following that followed all these copies of the manuscripts for years to come. And they copied them down exactly with great precision, with great effort and accuracy and careful attentiveness to the words. Such that we have accurate copies as well. And so, although the manuscripts that we have today, they are not the originals, they are exact to the originals to such a degree that they are entirely trustworthy. So over the years, manuscript after manuscript was carefully transcribed with an astounding, and I, wouldn't, uh, I would even say a providential accuracy and even frequency. So of... Homer's Iliad. So when we think of, you know, different ancient manuscripts in the world that people take in and and receive and trust, and they do that with, uh, well, I'll tell you. So of Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies of that, and people receive it as is. And of Tacitus's Annals, we have 20 copies People receive it in total. And of Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have ten copies. Yet, to all of that, and those numbers, for the New Testament alone, we have close to over 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament testifying to how seriously men took transcribing and being as faithful to the original autographs as they possibly could be. And so they would, and they sought to do that. And so such that the scholar and apologist John Warwick Montgomery, he says, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classic antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament And so along with that, though, these manuscripts come to us with such purity, meaning that they're going to be accurate to the original autographs. Some even say up to 99.9%. And the point is things like, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ versus it might say Lord Jesus Christ or may say the, the Lord Christ. So you see different words are missing here and there, but it doesn't affect like the interpretation, no major doctrine, the meaning of the passage. And so the biblical scholar F.F. Bruce, he says, By the singular care and providence of God, the Bible text has come down to us in such, such substantial purity that even the most uncritical edition of the Hebrew or Greek and Greek, or the most incompetent or even the most tendentious translation of such an edition cannot effectively obscure the real message of the Bible or neutralize its saving power. And so the manuscripts that we have today, 
from which we have our current Bible translations. They are so close to the original manuscripts that we can say with confidence, even as we've been doing throughout the service, with confidence that we have God's Word. So hear that loud and clear. And along with this, we see and say with Scripture, because there's no authority higher than Scripture, Some may say that's a circular argument. Well, if you have the highest authority above all authorities, it's going to be a circular argument. We do that in the Supreme, in our country. The Supreme Court made this decision. Why, well, why is it final? It's because the Supreme Court made the decision. It's the same way we have the ultimate authority above any one of us, the Word of God. So we appeal to the Word of God because it is the Word of God. And so then we say and see with Scripture, That God is the infinitely true, perfect, and good God, would not and cannot lie, as Titus 1-2 tells us, and would not and cannot err, as testified throughout God's word. It means there cannot be errors in the Bible. Proverbs 30, verse 5 through 6, it says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. And so we see and we say that God's word is inerrant, without error, completely trustworthy and true. Amen. The second attribute then, inspiration it means that God's it means that scripture is God breathed. God breathed. So we read this a minute ago in 2 Timothy, but I want to read it again. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, it says this. It says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so here, the words breathed out by God, it literally means it's taking two words and putting them together, which Paul meant to do breath and God, um, theopneustos. And he's saying that these, the words, scripture that we have, it is God breathe. It's from God himself. Such that we see, and we must say, that every word of scripture is from God. So even as we, we recognize, at the same time, that God, he used human authors, he used their personalities, he used their writing styles, which we have all variety of writing styles in poetry and so on. That scripture's ultimate author was and is God with every word ultimately inspired by him. So even with the human authors, we do err, people err, but God as the ultimate author made it where they would not err at whatsoever. So we, we say human and divine with God being the ultimate author, such that Second Peter, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so we believe that. 
And so we come to our Bible seeing and saying then what Psalm 19 says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The, war, the, rule of the Lord, uh, rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And so, we hold to these things, inerrancy, inspiration, infallibility, everything that Scripture speaks on is true. So this brings us to this challenging question then. So how should we approach this passage? How should we approach this passage? So first, we need to recognize that it was not part of the earliest manuscripts. And I don't even have to argue that. They tell you that if you have it in your Bible there. You see it in the brackets. And you see that clearly. The the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11. And so this means that this bracketed portion of our Bibles, it was inserted later. Meaning... And this is the work of textual criticism and scholars along the lines. They're seeking to be as faithful to autographs as we possibly can be. And after they've looked and these manuscripts have been found and produced, they have found that that this passage is not in the earliest manuscripts. So it's not there. And that means that it was not originally part of John's Gospel. I know that's and perhaps a bit shocking to many of you as well. And maybe you've seen these brackets and you're wondering, you know, what do I do with these? Well, this didn't actually start showing up until around 1000 AD. And so we really mean like early manuscripts did not have it. And the earlier ones would have been accurate to the original, trying to be founded upon it. And so the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he writes that despite the efforts of some to show that it was original, modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text or to relegate it to a footnote. And let me just say this as well, that that is this work that they have been doing, it's, it's an outflow of faithfulness and a longing to be faithful to God's word above anything else. So we we come thankful for men and women who have done this very complicated, very detailed, uh, tremendous amount of working with language after language, knowing these languages, who have worked hard and labored hard that we would have our Bibles that we have here now. Which leads us then to recognize, second, the oddity of its placement in the Gospel of John. So, this is just perhaps another point that makes sense of why we wouldn't say this is part of the Gospel of John. Unoriginal. So, it actually, it actually interrupts the flow of the Gospel of John. So, what do I mean? Well, in chapter 8, uh, verse 12, that right there, what it's going on there, which we'll see next week, it continues right off 
where chapter 7, verse 37 through 8, through uh, chapter 7, verse 52 come from. So it continues right where it left off, like nothing happened whatsoever. We're continuing on the last day of the feast of booze. You know, we're still in that context, but then here, that's not what happens. He, he goes, it's the next day, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and a Mount of Olives which you never see referenced in the Gospel of John, as well as, you know, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you never see the scribes referenced in the Gospel of John either. And along with this, this passage is actually placed in various other places throughout the manuscripts, the later manuscripts as well. Some place it after John 7.44, some place it after John 7.36, some place it after John 21.25, and some even place it in Luke chapter 21, verse 38. And some even say this has language that's more akin to Lukean kind of language, a coin of word there. So it's not proper to John. So in view of this, what are we to do? So, and I, I am fully aware of how many, how endearing this passage is. I mean, there's just no, no way around it. I mean, this is a special passage. I mean, you may have, you know, studied this and you may have preached on it. You may have, you know, taught on it. You may have done all these things. And so, so how, what are we to do with this? Well, we must acknowledge, because it's not among the earliest of manuscripts, and it's a consensus, it's unoriginal. That would mean it's uninspired. Yet, and that's why I said this sermon's going to be a weird sermon. How do you preach from a text that isn't seen as inspired? But I want to... To, I want to do this because I don't want you to be reading your Bibles or even have someone come and say, well, you see here, you know, you have this in your Bible and it's not even, even really there, you know. I want to give you an answer to those things. So how, what are we to do with this? Well, we need to still learn from it while maintaining and giving final authority to Scripture. So even though we see it wasn't among the earliest of manuscripts, most agree that what we read here likely happened. So they thought it was important enough that to still put it in here, in John. But we don't quite know that for sure either since it isn't inspired. But we may, know, we may not know that for sure in this life, you know, how, if it really happened or not, but it was important enough that they put this in for our instruction. And it does not contradict any doctrine that we see in Scripture. Um, and it doesn't even contradict the character of Jesus that we see of Jesus as well. And so, with these points, then, and these perhaps very difficult points over the text... We'll turn then to the second part of the sermon and look directly at this passage then with other passages. And seeing this, not in the earliest of manuscripts, we're going to bring other scriptures to bear upon it as the authority over it.
I think that's the way it would be right to walk through or preach this passage in light of wanting to hear from God this morning as we've heard already from Psalm 19 and 2 Timothy and so on and Proverbs. So, we're going to put inspired scripture over it. So with that, then, with our aim to learn from this passage, going into the passage itself, so part two of this sermon, like I said, this is a different sermon we're having to do this morning. We see here then in chapter 7, verse 53, verses 1 through 2, that Jesus, he here, goes to the Mount of Olives, and he, he sits down, and he begins teaching. And so as he sits there and he teaches the scribes and the Pharisees, they rush in here and they are ready to condemn. And I don't think it's, it's they are ready to condemn on multiple levels here. Here, despite the ruckus they create here in coming in the midst of this, which was very odd. There's no like trial going on here, which would have been right. They just publicly do this in front of everyone. Verse 6, it tells us their main heart was not that they would make sure that this woman is justly judged. Their main heart is verse 6. This they said to him that they may ha- might have a charge to bring against him. And so like they test Jesus, as we have seen already in the Gospel of John again and again, and they test him with all variety of questions about taxes, questions about the Sabbath, and questions about the law. They do here as well. They're trying to trap him just like they do elsewhere. And so to achieve this, they bring this woman before Jesus. And they knew the woman's faults. Which, you know, that is just a little bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how... Just as you're thinking about it, you know, how did they know this woman's faults, especially in this very specific way? I mean, I mean, this wondering brings out just how crafty the religious leaders were. And we see that elsewhere throughout the Bible in the New Testament. You know, it's plain there that the religious leaders are all pulling out all manner of crafty tricks and conundrums and trying to catch Jesus if they can. But they won't, and they don't outwit Jesus. So how, you wonder about this. What, how would they have done this? So maybe they hired a man to trick this woman into committing adultery? I mean, to know that, like the catcher in the act? I mean, what would you need to do to be able to catch someone in the act like that? Or they were spying on this woman. They had something perhaps they were against her or trying to find someone they could get and, and try to you know, catch Jesus or trap him. Or they knew her reputation, such that they were, they were waiting for some sort of opportunity to catch her in the act, which is exactly what it says they did, and they caught her here in the act. And the fact that they come without the man is suspicious as well. Like, what happened to that guy? <laughs> did he run off, or did they pay him, and you did your job, good job, all right, now get out of here. You know, what's up with that? I mean... The law, it did not say, you know, grab the man, forget the woman, and put her and her alone on the trial seat. It said that they both are to be tried. And yet, he's nowhere here. So Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two it says, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, 
Both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. And so you shall purge the evil from Israel. So all that just adds like layer upon layer on top of the duplicity and the trickery of the religious leaders. And so yet, even as they come certain of this, this, this woman's faults, what do they do? Just like we see again and again in the Gospel of John, they miss their own faults. They miss their own faults in Matthew 23 and throughout all the Gospels. They are rejecting the Son of God and seeking to condemn Him. So which is the greater sin? If you're going to put them on a scale here, I mean, adultery or rejecting and even putting to death God's only Son. Not that it's not serious, adultery. But man, the weight of condemnation is great over them and even greater over them than this woman. And so they knew the woman's faults, but Jesus knows theirs. He knows that they are less concerned about justice and more concerned about catching and trapping Jesus. So here's the trap. And it's a double trap, which we see with the kind of questioning they do of Jesus elsewhere. And so... Um, basically, it, so if Jesus had said to her or said, all right, go ahead, stone her. Let's say he said that, well, he would come into direct conflict with the Roman authorities who say, no, 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 we're the ones who pronounce sentences like that. And so he would have been in trouble with them. And they, you know they would have turned him in. <laughs> like, can you believe what he did? You see how he defied you, Rome? So if he said that, he'd be in trouble. Yet, if he says, all right, just let her be, you know, he would be violating God's law. So here we have this big old trap, this neon sign with the word trap glowing over it. And Jesus, like we've seen in the Gospel of John, and and he knew Nathaniel, he knew the Samaritan woman, and so he knows their hearts as well. He knows what they're after, and he does not answer them. But he bends down and he writes in the dirt. What was all that about? I have no idea. (laughs) And I think that's the most accurate answer we can give. We can guess. You know, we we could do that. We could say, well, you know, maybe he was uh, writing out uh, the laws that the religious leaders were violating here, you know, or writing out all their secret sins or something else. But we ultimately just don't know. what he was doing. And I could make something up. But that wouldn't be helpful. <laughs> we're, not, we're not after that. And so he writes on the ground, writing something, and then he stands up, and then he tells them this wise response, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so during this time, the standard for men was much more lax than for women. And so there is an implication here that the ones having the stones weren't just getting ready to stone this woman because of her adultery, but they themselves had been adulterers as well in the past. So he's not just saying, like, if you're a sinner, drop the stone. 
He's driving home something here that they themselves know is deeper. And so, they perhaps have committed adultery themselves. So if you're ready to stone her, you're missing your own sins, yes, by which, by the very same token, condemn you. So, what a danger that is, isn't it? Not only them, but to us also, right? The danger of, you know, being kind of a people who are looking out and trying to find faults in others. I mean, they were careful to craft this. Even trying to formulate a a fault-finding mentality in Jesus as well. Let's trap them. Let's find some little thing we can charge them with. The danger of being fault finders, being quick to find fault in others, perhaps even having a stone readied, which sadly is common in some churches, rather than remembering who him who saved us and him who is without sin. And so we need to be more honest within ourselves and here, more merciful towards one another. And so we need to honestly assess ourselves or honestly assess yourself. Friends, I know that we all can come in this place and act like we have it all together. But let's be honest with ourselves. We do not. And in saying that, when you're saying, you know, I do not have it all together. I mean, yes, I may try to raise my children well and so on and so on. But, man, I'm not going to come to this place to be a fault finder. I'm not going to have a stone here waiting for, well, what did you say? You raise your children that way? Oh, yeah, you watch those movies? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. You know, have that stone ready in your, your back pocket. That's not not to be us. When we admit that, you know, we're a bunch of sinners, we're we're saying, you know, I need Jesus. I mean, and honestly, you look at anyone long and hard enough and you will find fault in them. (laughs) You know, I've been a pastor here now for only a year and if you haven't found fault in me yet, just wait a little longer. You know, I mean, it's going to come. I'm, I'm not perfect. But I do need Jesus. And I need Him every day. And the Spirit of God is showing me things and growing me. And so are you by the Spirit of God in you. He is showing me, perhaps, and things that you're saying to me that the Lord is using to conform me to Jesus Christ. And same with me to you. And your brother or sister and, or even the children here. As well, or youth, or college age, or the elderly, or whoever it is, all of us. If you know Christ, we're all doing this, and God is using one another for His glory. So we're all just in need of Jesus desperately. Amen. So our, there are faults in us. They're there in me, they're there in you. Not without sin, but I do know Him who is. And if you know Christ, so do you. 
Remember what he has saved us from. So God, he wants our hearts. He doesn't want us to be performers here at church. Like, man, you know, that's a godly person when at home you are a wreck. Well, that person's so gentle, but then at home, man, fierce and mean. He wants our hearts. He wants your heart, and that heart is a messy heart. And it's okay. You know, so you're just getting that tension. You know, the, the tendency and even the temptation is going to be to come in here and think you have to perform for all of us to say to show how knowledgeable you are, how godly you are. But that's not what you're called to do. We need, we need each other in the mess. In the midst of our imperfect knowledge. In the midst of so many areas of our our children, our our lives, our workplace. We're trying to find out what we're going to do in the midst of all this social distancing and everything else. And so we come together, living life together for the glory of God. As people who need Jesus. And if you don't know him here this morning, God, he in his grace has given us new hearts. As messy sinners we are, and he can give you a new heart as well. If you don't know him, the mess you are as well. So here, as we look on then, where we see in chapter 7, verse 53 through 9, the religious leaders, they are ready to condemn In verses 10 through 11, we see Jesus is ready to save. So at Jesus' words, everyone leaves. What is that saying? You know, what kind of sin are they doing? Stone by stone, each of them go, and not a sinless, innocent one among them. Now it's just Jesus and her and this woman. In this quiet moment, Jesus gets up and he tells her, so woman, where are they? Woman's not a derisive or disrespectful term. It was actually very respectful. You know, woman, where are they? You know, like woman, you know, he's not saying it that way, so you don't hear it that way. It's more like, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she answers, no, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. And as we take this, and we see it and we say, trying to put scripture over it as well. This statement isn't alone. Jesus says something similar in five, chapter 5, verse 14 of John. Where he told the man there, if you remember, who couldn't walk. He said, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so lest we misunderstand here, Jesus, he is not condoning this woman's sin. He isn't making light of her sin. He isn't saying, go and keep sinning. He's saying, go and do away with it. And that isn't all. It's not just like a moralistic message that he's, he's giving here. He's, he isn't saying, go and sin no more without him. This is always 
what Jesus is doing. He's always saying, if you go anywhere, you go with me. You need me. So with Nicodemus, he's saying, you need me, Nicodemus. And with a Samaritan woman, he's saying, you need me. And he's, with religious leaders as well, who are rejecting him, he is still saying, come all who are thirsty, and drink. You need me. And this woman needs him, and so it would not be fitting for her to go without him. And this is the very reason that Jesus came. He came to save. He did not come to condemn. But as John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He will judge. But this isn't that day. This is the day of salvation. So go and sin no more is His call to you. So unlike the stern words of the religious leaders, Jesus' words were words filled with what? Filled with grace and truth. So may we honestly then cultivate that kind of heart. Gracious hearts. And I am afraid for the church and for those who are more adept at pointing out faults and sins in others than cultivating hearts overflowing with graciousness, compassion, and mercy because they themselves have taken part in grace and compassion and mercy themselves in and through Christ. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for us to point out sin. But it does mean we do so mindful that we too have stones that we need to put down. So as I close this morning, I know this was a different sermon. But I hope, and even now, may you trust God's word. And may this, if anything, cause you to see the seriousness the longing to be faithful to God's word in such a degree that we would look at a passage like this and say, well, let's be honest. So may your trust in God's word increase. And as we have seen and see throughout scripture, let us honestly assess ourselves. Let us be a gracious people. So consider yourself this morning. Maybe you are that fault finder. You're that person that no one really has told you, but you know, you're that person that they're kind of trying to avoid because everything you say is always something against someone else. Let's honestly assess ourselves. God is calling us to this, and so cultivate gracious hearts. And maybe you're here and you don't know Christ and you're afraid, or maybe you do, and you're, you're afraid your sin will be discovered. Afraid that Jesus won't accept you. Well, you know what? He came for you. He came for sinners. He came for such as you and me. And there is your hope. Jesus is your hope this morning. Let's pray together.
Father, we come now, Lord, and I realize that, well, I just admit that this was a difficult sermon. But Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the time that we could think through how true your word is. That your word is inspired. It is infallible. It does come and pierce our souls. And I pray that this morning as we've heard and we've drawn from scripture in various places that each of us would consider ourselves in, in these ways. We consider Jesus, the one who came for sinners, and admit that we, yes, all of us are a mess. We all need Jesus. So help us, Lord, to examine whether we've had minds and hearts and words of fault-finding and condemning and stones, and ask whether we have gracious hearts. So help us, Lord, and pray that If someone here doesn't know you, may you even now help them to see their desperate need for you. They would trust in Christ and believe in him and leave all and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.